Warning, Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam contains mature subject matter. This is Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam, young men, and I want you to call your mama and tell her you love her. Mother's Day is coming up this weekend. Don't wait. So if you're slipping, you haven't bought a gift yet, go ahead. Because here's the thing. A lot of us, our moms aren't still with us. And if you're in this shitty club, well, you can call me. I know it's not the same, but I also know how much that weekend sucks for you. Because it sucks for me. It's been four years, and I still reach for the phone to call my mom. It was usually after a big ball game. That's when she'd answer the phone by exclaiming, Did you see that? And then we'd break down the game and what just happened and what we just saw. So yeah, this is a Mother's Day episode, and it's kind of emotional for me. It's extremely emotional for me. But I wanted to tell you about my mom. I wanted to talk to you about Linda Gale Youngman. She was born Linda Gale Smith on Christmas Day in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Her Kappa Delta sorority sisters would forever call her Linda Gale in that sweet Southern accent. Kosciuszko is the same town my grandma and Oprah Winfrey are from. And I just have to assume that everybody who's from there is born with an extra part of their brain or their heart or their soul that makes them better than the rest of us just a little bit and gives them that glow that other people are drawn to. If my mom had ever been in a position to give away cars to strangers, I know she would have done it in a heartbeat. Her dad was born in Meridian, Mississippi, and he had come up dirt poor, living in a shack with his dad and his siblings, his sister Lola May, mostly raising him, before he moved on to drive beer trucks in New Orleans. He was just a boy. I used to tell a story about driving one of those big beer trucks into a famed New Orleans streetcar when he was only 11. He told another story about how it got so cold once they brought their goat into the kitchen, and the goat still froze to death. They said that Lola May sold her best dress so that Pop could buy an inexpensive wedding ring, and he used it to marry my grandma. And they were married till she died, 62 years. He'd quit school in sixth grade to find work, and after he was married, he joined what was then the Army Air Force. He was 17, and he lied about his age so he could enlist with his cousin. He'd talk years later about working during the day and then taking classes for his GED and later college credit courses at night because he was always in fear that some college boy was going to come take his job. He'd sit at the kitchen table with my mom, and they'd both do their homework, and my grandma would split a Coca-Cola between the two of them. Despite those fears, he proved himself indispensable by inventing some kind of jacket casing that went around cables. It was used on space shuttles. It's still used on airplanes today. But he never stopped valuing an education. And he made sure that his daughter was going to college. By the way, my sister Betsy uh, helped me fill in a lot of gaps here. And I, I really appreciate the help, kid, because good Lord, I needed it. Linda Gale was a hard worker like her father. She's also a talented athlete, a great softball player, and a heck of a bowler. Mom used to say that when she got to college, the career paths that she was offered were teacher, secretary, nurse, or wife. And so she decided to teach. She became a PE teacher and later a health teacher. She'd tell the story of the first job she thought she had secured at a school in eastern Kentucky. The interview with the principal went great, and she was sure she'd found her first gig when the man finished with the caveat, just as long as you're okay with us not letting N-word lovers around here. Yeah, Mom decided to keep exploring her options. Eventually, Linda Gale settled in Owensboro, Kentucky, teaching gym at an elementary school. One of the teachers there wanted to introduce my mom to her son, who had just returned from his second tour in Vietnam. They got married, and they had three kids. Truth be told, my mom could have done a lot better. She should have done a lot better. Apparently, the students in her first years called her Wonder Woman because they thought she looked like Linda Carter. 
But look, I'm not going to use this occasion to publicly shit all over my dad. I'll just say they divorced and that the early part of my life feels like looking back on a cloudy day. It's not that the memories are hazy. I mean, they are. It's just that it felt like there were often dark clouds over my house. And it was a nice place, little place. The backyard was shaped like an L. And on the short end of that L was a giant dead oak tree. And it made sure that nothing grew over there. Just an ugly dirt patch with no grass, a big tractor tire filled with sand and cat shit and pine needles. And that was supposed to be our sandbox. And there was an old beat up aluminum canoe that my dad never used it. But he insisted on keeping hanging on a fence. I can't even imagine that thing would stay afloat after my brother and I got our BB guns and, well, we saw that canoe as a big fat target. Anyway, in my early teens, and again, I'll spare you the details and save them for yet another therapist, but dad left and those clouds started to part. And while I was battling acne and a squeaky voice and whining about how hard my life was and filling up with rage and angst and just generally being an awful fucking teenager, who even now I look back on with utter disdain, my mom was putting us on her back and moving us forward. She said that she first focused on paying off the house, and then she took extra jobs coaching women's basketball and later cheerleading. She would proctor the ACT and the SAT on weekends for a little more money. We had joined a swim club in town when it opened, and she took a job there in the concession stand so that we could continue to hang out. She eventually became manager of that swim club. It's called Atlantis. She made herself indispensable, just like her dad had. And when we were old enough, we got jobs there too, mostly as lifeguards. And it wasn't just us. She created a PE class where kids could get their lifeguard certification. And then she could hire them and they'd have jobs. I have to say, I was almost definitely her worst employee. Yeah, she fired me like three times. That's right. My own mom fired me. But she didn't really put up with dumb shit back then or at all. And I really didn't give her much choice because dumb shit was basically all I did. Just about any summer hit from the late 1980s and early 90s takes me immediately back to Atlantis. My sister says we call them Atlantis songs. Every time I hear everybody wants to rule the world, I am back at that pool. But now when I'm there, I'm thinking about how hard my mom must have been working, how tired she must have been, how she was a teacher who didn't get the summer off because she wanted us to have a place to play. She told my sister it was the only way she figured out how to give us a fun summer where she could work and also spend time with us and know we're safe. And yeah, I know most teachers don't actually get to take their summers off. For some reason, our country has decided they're the people who we should trust with our kids and our future, but also treat like shit. When we were young and she was teaching at the poorest elementary school in town, she would bring kids home to play with us and our toys, and we could see that not everybody was as lucky as we are. And as we got older, we learned about how she helped those kids in other ways, the ones who came in bruised or didn't have enough to eat. She provided feminine hygiene products and travel-sized shampoo, conditioner, and soap. And later, when we got to middle school, where all the elementary schools were dumped out together, it wasn't crazy to see another kid wearing an old Kentucky basketball shirt or jacket that I used to wear. I remember how scared I was to go to sixth grade, the big middle school transition. I was picturing some hardcore shit like in Lean On Me, you know, before Morgan Freeman's crazy Joe Clark takes over and cleans the place up. It wasn't really like that, of course. But on the first day, a kid did cut in front of me and dare me to do something about it. Y'all, I was not going to do something about it. Then, out of nowhere, a bigger kid stepped in and let it be known to the line cutter that I was not to be messed with or he would do something about it. Yeah, my mom had taught him in elementary school. I remember that kid's name, but I don't know what he's doing and I don't want to embarrass him, so I'll just say, man, if you hear this, I appreciate you getting my back and I have never forgotten it. It's been so long. So much of it is just hazy. 
But I remember, and really it'd be impossible to forget, that my mom was universally loved by her students. Everywhere we went, they told me how lucky I was to have her. But I was a selfish asshole kid. I didn't see what they saw. I'd just say, yeah, well, you don't live with her. It's actually easy to become resentful when you have the kind of mom that cares about so many people. It's not something to be proud of, but it's easy. Kids are selfish, and I took it to new levels. I wanted my mom to be my mom. Of course, I didn't complain when her students were getting me out of jams in the cafeteria. I used to get so annoyed going to the grocery store with her. She talked to every person there. Always running into former students or someone from the swim club. She always used the same joke. Oh, I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. That's a, that's a good joke. It always got a laugh. It'd take hours. And I'd felt the same annoyance when I'd go with my grandma at Kmart. I know my little sister's kids are going to feel it someday, too. Mom was eventually promoted to the high school just a couple years before I would get there, and her streak of being loved by her students continued. I know she couldn't have liked them all, and there were definitely a couple she grumbled about. But my mom seemed to love just about every kid in her classes. But she had a soft spot for underdogs. In fact, rooting for and trying to help the underdog might have been one of her most defining characteristics. She took dodgeball out of the curriculum before everybody else did, just because it upset her to watch the weaker or the different kids getting targeted. My brother and sister and I, we have a lot of great shared memories of our mom. But our, our collective favorite might just be the time we dragged her reluctantly to see the, quote, stupid movie, Ernest Saves Christmas. She said it looked so dumb. She had no interest in it. It was, <laughs> it was so beneath her. And then we got to the theater, and her laughter was so loud and out of control that we were cringing the way kids do. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but when Ernest stops Santa's sleigh from crashing into the ground, and he turns to the camera and he says, air breaks. Well, there's no way the other theaters, or really the rest of the town, didn't hear my mom laughing. I went from shy, awkward kid to burnout troublemaker about halfway through high school. I guess that's a good time to do it. And my mom a champion of anti-drug efforts and being high on life. Well, she lost me to the dark side. I was an angry kid. I had some rebelling to do. I regret the endless hell I put her through those years. I really do. But I have spent a lot of time beating up on that 17-year-old version of myself, and at some point, I've got to move on and give that scrawny little asshole a break. Still, I have to believe my graduation, which almost didn't happen for me after I accidentally set off a noisemaker, firecracker, whatever you want to call it, in English class while everybody was reading quietly. Now, wait, I don't look at me like that. It really, it really was an accident. It scared me more than anyone else. But still, nobody was buying that shit. So I had to go through some sort of punishment. I don't even remember what it was, but it was pretty weak sauce. But I had to do it to be able to walk the graduation line. And when that did happen, well... I have to believe it was a big relief to her. Yeah, mom was an angel who had one of Satan's dumb shit nephews for her oldest son. I put my mom through absolute hell, and I feel terrible about it. My younger brother and sister are really great people. They were also really great kids. So you can rest easy knowing that things did eventually turn around at work for my mom. I see so much of her in them. It makes my heart smile. My sister even works in the garden and enjoys landscaping her house. That was pop's thing. And then mom's. Still taste pops, fresh tomatoes. After those clouds parted, mom spent the time that she wasn't working at one of her jobs working in the yard. She loved doing it. And when spring came around, our azaleas were spectacular. She tossed that old holy canoe and she hired some guys to cut down that old ugly dead oak. 
And over time, with the sunshine reaching where it hadn't before and her love and care focused on what was once an ugly sight, that dead corner was as green and alive as the rest of our beautiful yard. She went on coaching cheerleading and teaching until eventually retiring to help take care of her mother, whose dementia from Alzheimer's was taking the horrific and cruel toll on her and Pop that it takes on everyone who has the misfortune of coming across it. And her oldest son slowly started getting his shit together. And she was supportive every step of the way. After she died, I found the earliest stories I ever wrote. They were yellow and clipped and kept in boxes. When I was in fifth grade, I won a citywide poetry contest. It was one of those, what does freedom mean to me kind of things. And part of my award was a $5 gift certificate to a local pharmacy. I know, it's a weird award. But I used it to buy my mom a cheap little blue coin purse. And she carried her money and her credit cards in that until I was in my 30s. And it was still close by to her when she passed. When I started going on TV, she was my biggest fan, watching every appearance, calling me when I was in the car afterward to tell me how, how great I did. And even getting a little mad at me when I'd forget to call her. You know, I didn't think it was a big deal. She was so proud that I was flying on Air Force One. She was a dutiful daughter. She was with her mom when she died. And years later, when I was going through something similar, and it was only a few days before my own mom died, we were sitting alone, and I told her I was sorry. I told her I, told her I was sorry I hadn't been a better son. I apologized for everything I put her through. <laughs> and she chuckled, and she said, that's funny. I always thought I was the same thing to my mom, and I laughed. And then I realized years later that she didn't really accept my apology. I think we're good, though. I know we were. But back when my grandmother died, my mom leaned into her retirement more, bringing my granddad with her when both of them buying a cabin on a lake or playing lots of cards. They loved a game called hand and foot. It's a lot of fun. And they played a lot more golf. Now, I know people knock on golf, and I get it. And honestly, after Trump, it's hard for me to give a shit about the PGA like I used to. But these are the people who taught me to play as I got older. And we weren't rich, and we weren't playing fancy country clubs. The country clubs we did play, well, they put the country in country clubs. But we were playing a sport that taught us about rules and manners and patience and integrity. And we were doing it together, and we were doing it outside. The time I spent playing golf with my mom or my granddad or both are some of my greatest adult memories. Mom might have been the best high-fiver the sporting world has ever known. I don't play that much now, and I think their not being here has a lot to do with that. It's just not the same if I can't call my mom and tell her how, you know, my round went. It wasn't long after Grandma had passed that Mom got her first cancer diagnosis. It stalked her in different forms for the next decade. She always seemed to beat it back. My sister talks about how my mom never complained whenever she'd get bad news. She'd just say, okay, let's get started with the treatment. And there were so many times we thought we were in the clear. My sister and my brother really stepped up. They were the ones who, who held her hand who took care of everything while I was chasing stupid fucking politicians around the country. It's a debt that I owe them that I can never repay. But the times when mom felt like she was in the clear, well, she was just mom, unstoppable. She became a grandmother. She traveled the country playing different golf courses with her friends who were just as crazy as she was. I introduced her to the president of the United States at a White House Christmas party. Oh, and while most people get nervous in that situation, she walked right up to President Barack Obama like they were old war buddies. Hey there, Mr. President, how's your golf game? <laughs> she, bought a, she bought a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler with a tire cover that said, life is good. And I asked her about it once and she smiled and she said confidently, well, that's my motto. And I just laughed and I said, I didn't know you had a motto. And she said, well, yeah, she loved the Lord. 
and she sang loudly in church, despite not being blessed with maybe the greatest singing voice. Whatever she lacked in talent, she made up for in volume. Every year I got older, the more I saw her for the remarkable person she was. The more I realized what she had sacrificed for us, the more I appreciated how much she loved me when it must have been impossible to like me. She used to tell me all the time, one of these days you're going to learn that I'm always right. And damn it, she was right about that too. But it wasn't one day. It actually happens all the time. I had moved to live on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland when she received her final cancer diagnosis. So I went back to Kentucky, to her house. While things were bad and getting worse, we were watching sitcoms together. We'd watch the television version of Lethal Weapon or Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and we watched pretty much whatever ball game was on. When I would show off while we were watching Jeopardy or Sports Jeopardy, she'd say, very good, and I felt so proud of myself. She died in her bed at home in April, three weeks before my 40th birthday, on a gorgeous spring Kentucky day. And when the funeral home director came over to do what they do, he told us there was a bit of a scheduling snafu. It seems that the, a member of the Grim Reapers Motorcycle Club had passed away, and while we were welcome to share the funeral home with his rather large crew of mourning brothers and sisters, they did suggest we wait an extra day. And we thought about it for a minute, because Mom sure would have gotten a kick out of all of us hanging out with the Grim Reapers for a day. But ultimately, we decided she deserved her own day. But that's the thing, man. They all do. Mothers. I keep seeing these progressive commercials about the guy who's going to help you avoid turning into your parents. And I get it. It's funny. But every time I laugh so hard, I snort or make a pot roast on a cold day or say hello and smile at a stranger or help out someone who's having a hard time. I feel my mom and I'm so damn grateful for it. And so this Mother's Day, I hope you feel that love. Whether you're with your mom or not, whether your mom was a loving mom or not, I just hope you feel that love because there is no other love like it. And if you've lost your mom like I have, then I hope the memories of her make you as happy as mine do me, even though we might both be thinking them through tears. And that's okay. Our moms deserve our tears because they certainly deal with enough of our bullshit. Ain't that right, Rubes? Oh, I'm in tears right now. No, I'm sorry. No, I didn't mean to do that to you. You know, I'd put my mom through hell also. And it's what we do. your mother would be so fucking proud of you. She, oh, she would be our biggest listener, to be honest. <laughs> but she'd call and give you notes, so we'd have to re-record things. Oh, I guarantee it. I mean, that's the thing about her. She was a big fan of everything I did. Well, except for the, you know, the stupid shit. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the thing. You never stop wanting to make your mom proud, right? Yeah. I'll tell you a story. I was in rehab once, as, you know, as one is. And I, I broke out. I just took a run down the street. And they called my mom. And, you know, they were so worried. I was really young also. I was maybe just 18. And they called her and they were expecting her to be so upset, so worried. And she said, well, that's Ruby. Go and find her. (laughs) And I think about that all the time. Our mothers are both extremely hardworking, single mothers also. Holy shit. Yeah. Talking about doing not just both jobs, but about a million jobs at once. Yeah. And just... Putting me and my sister in front of so many things and making us important and feel uplifted, I'm lucky, even though I fight with my mom tooth and nail every day. Yeah. Um, but that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and just hearing your story about Linda Gale made me 
emotional because I appreciate my mom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You got to do it. You got to appreciate them while they're here. And also Steve's mom. Yeah. I hear that she listens to the show occasionally. Steve's she, our coordinator. Yeah, also. Steve is our coordinator. And uh, and Steve's mom raised a, uh, raised a pretty cool guy. Also, Steve's mom said that every time Sam gets like, upset about something gets irate is just like proving a point like pushing it home she feels calmer at the end of it and i do too i do too there's something you always ask me you're like do i sound like a lunatic and i'm like absolutely uh, you know a hundred percent but there's something about your rage that makes me feel like whole and centered and sort of agreeing with you you have that remarkable quality well, there's comfort in knowing that you're not alone right yeah i mean i think Considering the last five years, especially the last year that we've all been through, I think there were moments when we all felt like we were losing our minds. Yeah. And I think the most comforting thing in the world is when everybody else sees the thing that you were so sure was a hallucination. It's like, oh, good. It's not the acid I ate. It's it's really a pink elephant standing there. And just thinking about all the moms in the last year who were stuck at home with yeah. their bratty children <laughs> who couldn't go outside. Yeah. Shout out to you. Shout out to teachers who have been teaching remote yeah. learning. Oh, my God. What a year. I don't know how y'all do it. I, I, really I do not know. I'm grateful yeah. you do. We're going to talk to a mother, and she's so much more than just a mother, but also yeah. that's her biggest title, um, who, yeah. who's also a single mother and does it, absolutely does it all. So we are very, very lucky. We have Asha Rangapa here with us today, and I am really excited about this. Do you know, she's a senior lecturer at Yale about national security law because she was a former FBI agent. Oh, Lord. We got everything put away, right? No, I mean, it's wildly impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she is. Uh, she's a remarkable person. I'm so glad she joined us here today. I think we're going to have a good show today. Hell yeah. So please welcome Asha Rangapa. Asha, we're so glad you joined us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Ruby's here with me. And we want to start today by wishing you a happy early Mother's Day. We're uh, This is our Mother's Day episode, and we know you're a mom, so we wanted to say happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. You have two children, is that right? I do. I have a son who's 14 and a daughter who's 11. Wow. Oh my gosh. How do you have time to do everything you do? That's crazy. I, I just neglect them, basically. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, no, it's it's a lot easier once, you know, now they're kind of older, they have their social lives and their activities and, and things like that. So um and, and they're they're really great kids and very responsible and helpful. So oh, that's great. Well I hope they make it a a happy Mother's Day for you. Thanks a lot. I, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about childcare today, the day that we're recording this. Uh it's the day after President Biden has given his address to Congress and he's introduced this American family plan. And, you know, people need childcare so they can work. And what's the response from people like Marsha Blackburn? Oh, this is communist propaganda. I mean, help me understand this, Asha. We can get into the substance of why that's just bizarre. But um, it's ironic also because affordable childcare was Ivanka Trump's whole, quote unquote, <laughs> platform. You know, that was what she paid lip service to for four years, claiming that she what? was empowering women. I forgot about that. So it's just very interesting that now it's suddenly become the, you know, radical commie idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really sure what the rationale is behind this. You know, if it, it's one thing, if it's really, you know, if you had the typical conservative response, which is how are we going to pay for it? Right. Like that's, um, you know, the idea of where are we going to get the money is is one thing. But this is 
you know, Marsha Blackburn. There was another um, post from J.D. Vance who who said that normal people who care about their kids actually prefer to stay home. And that's what the government should be um, helping. And so, you know, there's a there's a thread here that is at odds. Um, On the one hand, you know, during COVID, the Republicans were anti, you know, increasing COVID relief because they didn't want people to stay. They were like, oh, people will then just stay home and they won't work if we give them too much money. But now it's like, you know, okay, let's spend money to make it easier for people to work. And they're like, no, we don't want that either. I can tell you from personal experience, childcare is a is a very big challenge. Well, I mean, that's the thing. You almost have to believe, I mean, somebody like J.D. Vance, who's getting $10 million from Silicon Valley vampire Peter Thiel to uh, to run his Senate race, and he's he's telling working moms what they need. I mean, it's almost like their new party platform is, look how crazy out of touch we are. It's like they've never met a woman before. They're just saying no to everything. Right. Yeah, there is his um, position, especially the implicit assumptions there are that women should be at home taking care of the children. And that women who work must not care about their kids. I mean, that that's sort of what he is saying, right? Like, no, no woman in her right mind would actually want. And yeah. he doesn't say woman, but clearly, uh, you know, if someone is staying home to take care of the kids, then someone is the breadwinner. I suspect that he is suggesting, you know, traditional gender roles. And I think that's really disappointing for someone um, to be promoting, but especially because just as an economic productivity and, you know, thriving economy and democracy issue, you want more people in the workforce. Like we are better off as a nation when women with talents and skills and specialized knowledge are are out and, and working. So we're talking a lot about Mother's Day. Let's shift gears for a second to cousins or rather the kind of guy who marries his own cousin. And let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. What a segue. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) You're a former FBI agent. You're a security expert. How much trouble is the president's lawyer in? So, okay, let me just say that I think Rudy has been involved, I'm sure, in some bad and shady things. But I have to tell you, his story, like every time something happens, it delights me to no end just because (laughs) there is just always like this. SNL quality to, you know, how it all unfolds, right? (laughs) Right. Like with Four Seasons Total Landscaping um, a while ago. So anyway, which was literally the best day of my life. Um, Yeah, that was. (laughs) (laughs) That was coming out. You know, I'm assuming he's in very big trouble because he is someone for whom launching an investigation and going down this road, especially after what the FBI and Department of Justice has been put through over the last four years, being accused of being politicized or political and and all that stuff, for them to take the step, they believe crimes have been committed, right? And not only that, but as the president's former attorney, the bar is higher, just the internal bars to, uh, you know, get approval to do, say, to execute a search warrant. Um, It takes more resources. It's it's just they have to dot their I's and cross their T's. And they're not going to go through all of that, I think, for some, you know, just podunk, let's just get this guy in jail. So, you know, I, I think that what we are discussing, you know, that seems to be obvious that there is a Foreign Agent Registration Act violation that he may be that, you know, he was potentially working as an undisclosed agent uh, for Ukraine um, is what I'm guessing. My guess is it's probably the tip of the iceberg. I think that there 
maybe other things, financial stuff that that is underlying all of that and that will come to light. That's my speculation. I mean, I feel like if you're a progressive activist, though, or just a, a progressive or just an American who gives a damn about the rule of law, you've spent the last four years waiting, waiting, waiting for somebody to actually go down for these crimes. I I, I can understand people who are skeptical that anything's really going to happen. Yeah, to I feel like I'm like, all right, they raided his. I, I'm just like, oh, God, another <laughs> yeah. raid. And well, we did, went through this with Roger Stone. Yeah, yeah. I, do you feel like this is different? Well, you know, Roger Stone did actually get convicted of crimes. Sure. I mean, the, the problem with people like Roger Stone and uh, Michael Flynn was not that they were not pursued uh, and brought to justice and, and gone through the process is that it was undone. Yeah. Um, and it was undone by people acting on political motivations. And I think that that did a lot to erode the credibility of the Justice Department. And obviously it was incredibly frustrating uh, for for, as you said, the people that have been watching. But here's the deal. Somebody yesterday on CNN was like, you know, he's not going to turn against the president. He needs the president's protection. And it's like, what protection? He is not in the Oval Office anymore. <laughs> he cannot do anything for you. I don't yeah. I didn't understand that. Like, you know, the partnership has sailed. That's over. <laughs> and so I'm. it's not clear to me what uh, whether whether these things can be. I mean, it is clear to me. I don't think that these things can be obstructed in the way that they were. Um, especially under Bill Barr. Well, that's reading the story. It you definitely get the sense that the Barr Department of Justice was covering up. It was, it was so much, well, yeah. Like, well, and not just, but specifically covering up and preventing these investigations yeah. from going forward. And the, specifically, the one into into Giuliani. Am, am I reading that right, or am I reading too much into it? I think you are reading that right. I mean, let's let's just do a, a trip down memory lane. Jeffrey Berman, the uh, U.S. attorney for the the Southern District, remember, was yeah, fired yeah, yeah. in this whole shady episode where, where Bill Barr issued a statement saying he had resigned. Yeah. And he was like, no, I didn't resign. Right. Um, and then Trump uh, or Barr issued a letter saying, OK, well, Trump has fired you. And Trump is like, I have nothing to do with this. I mean, it was like very bizarre. <laughs> it seemed like he would only be doing that to try to thwart uh, investigations that the Southern District was What's going into now? The relationship between the Southern District and Maine Justice has has often been one where Maine Justice may not be in total control of the Southern District, right? Like it was it used to be referred to as the Sovereign District of New York because they would kind of do their own investigations, and it sounds like they have clearly protected their investigation. Uh, Bill Barr's Justice Department also denied them permission to execute the search warrant. Now, before the election, maybe that was justified because the Department of Justice also has a policy which um, prohibits or severely discourages uh, overt steps taken in investigations that may have any kind of influence in an upcoming election. And obviously, if Rudy Giuliani's apartment had been raided, you know, six weeks before the election, um, I think we can all be thankful that that didn't happen because you can bet your bottom dollar that. Trump's losing would also be blamed on that yeah. um, as, you know, an effort to sway the election. After the election, though, it's not clear to me why that permission was still not granted. So that kind of comes back to um, was he trying to protect the president? And we heard Joe Biden say in an interview that he had no idea the raid of, on Giuliani's apartment was happening. That's bullshit. No, I absolutely believe really? it. Well, I mean, Asha, you tell us, but I, I, I do 
get the sense that they are very committed to the idea of restoring independence to DOJ. I mean, at least from all outward appearances, they seem very serious about it. I have no trouble believing that Joe Biden didn't know about the raid. Really? I believe that he didn't. And I think yeah. that it would be in the int- it would be in Merrick Garland's interest. It would be in President Biden's interest to be like, I don't want to know. Like, I do not yeah. want to get involved in this. <laughs> That's true. I mean, <laughs> Biden doesn't like why would they tell him? He has no say. It's not like what he they need his approval or something. Right. Um, so it's actually in everyone's mutual interest to simply keep that firewall there because that mitigates any objective idea, like sense that there's uh, any influence going on, right? Well, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? It's absolutely the way it's supposed to be. I mean, so... I've just lived through the last four years, so I just assume <laughs> that there's wrongdoing at every turn. Trump turned you into a cynic, Ruby. That's, I, I hate yeah, to see If it. only Trump did that. <laughs> Look, there are clear protocols and norms for how the Justice Department is supposed to interface with the White House. Um, the Attorney General does coordinate with the President for things like policy priorities. You know, if the priorities of the administration, for example, is we are going to prioritize civil rights violations and hate crimes, um, that is something that he's going to sit down with Merrick Garland and they're going to talk about. Like, here's what we want. We want to have a focus on this. Um, Anti-Asian violence, like we want to, you know, because there are limited resources. So at some level, you are going to have to decide where do you want to focus? And, you know, the Trump administration focused on undocumented people. That was where they chose to do that. But I think wherever cases intersect with anything in which Either the president may, in fact, have some kind of self-interest or personal interest, or it may be perceived that he could have a personal interest. You want to basically keep that way out. So, you know, they shouldn't talk with him about any investigation involving Hunter Biden, like, obviously. But I think especially anything involving um, his former political opponent, given what's happened in the four years. So I believe it. Yeah, me too. I, I know so many Democrats who, after the last few years... You know, all they want is accountability. They want to believe that everybody is equal under the eyes of the law. And they're wondering when accountability is coming for Donald Trump. And a lot of people I know have given up. They're like, look, it's, it yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like, hey, he's a rich white guy and rich yeah. white guys get away with shit in this country. I don't country. think anything will ever fully stick to him. Asha, are, are they wrong? Are they being too cynical? I mean, is there a reason to believe that accountability is coming for Donald Trump? I don't know. I flip flop on this. Yeah. I would not count on accountability coming for things that he may have done in his capacity as president. For example, I don't think the Justice Department is going to try to prosecute him for obstruction of justice in the Mueller investigation, Mm -hmm. because there are just too many thorny constitutional issues that they would have to wade through. And he has Article two defenses like I can fire anybody I want. You know, like it's it's not worth it to kind of um, get into that thicket. You know, it actually could potentially complicate things for future occupants of the presidency. So you don't, you know, that that may uh, go in against um, charging him with, with things like that. I think also there is, and we don't have fortunately many uh, precedents, but we have one big precedent, which was President Ford declining, well, pardoning Nixon, partly because he believed that it was actually in the best interest of the nation to not have a former president be be put through this. Um, I think that situation is very different. Um, Nixon resigned. He accepted, like he acknowledged his role in things. So in some ways it's very different. So that's another thing that may counsel against taking action about things that have happened so far. But my position has always been, 
Trump is an ongoing crimer. Like he, you know, it's not like one thing that happened. We're not, it's not just like we are still looking at 2016. He, he continues to engage in what appears to be, at least on the surface, I think, investigatable behavior, like fraudulent fundraising, for example, yeah. uh, in the Stop the Steal stuff. Um, I think the incitement issue is something that may need to be looked at very carefully, that's that's difficult to prove. So this is the other issue that the Department of Justice, you're not going to charge the president unless it is a slam dunk, mm-hmm. right? Because even if it's a slam dunk, you may see a jury where one person is sympathetic and is going to acquit him. So, you know, it, it, in many ways, the, the deck is already stacked against the Department of Justice. So it has to be way over the top for them to bring the charge. Yeah. But I think that potentially ongoing finance, I think financial issues and crimes may be where it comes in, because then you have you followed the money, you have documentary trails. It's really hard to argue with like, hey, you lied on the tax, like you inflated your uh, self net worth on your application for this loan and then you deflated it for the IRS. Like that is tax fraud and bank fraud, you know, so something like that uh, they they may go after him with. The other thing not to discount are state prosecutions. I think states actually have way more latitude because you don't have all the political minefields that come with it of, you know, the Biden administration being accused of going after an opponent. I mean, if Georgia. Well, that was my question. Fulton County. Yeah. Fulton County D.A. seems to be hot on his trail. Totally. Um, And, you know, they're separate sovereigns. Um, States have their own laws. Uh, So whether it's tax fraud, whether it's electoral fraud, like in Georgia, uh, there's the inaugural committee. Um, We've had AGs, you know, looking at having civil investigations into um, inaugural money um, that could turn criminal. So I I would say states' rights may make a comeback uh, <laughs> when it comes to that holding Trump accountable. Yeah, no, it feels like uh, this is a very Al Capone approach. You know, he killed hundreds of people, but we're going to get him on tax evasion. I was about to say OJ, like we're going to get him on. Oh, we're get him not, in the civil trial. Yeah. yeah. I often compare him to OJ uh, in the kind of, uh, because of his personality traits of engaging in a pattern of criminal behavior, like narcissism you might get away with something big, but like there'll be some, you know, whatever dime store robbery that is what is going to get him in the end. Um, if it's not, because he just company. can't help himself. He just can't help himself. Yeah. It's not his fault. I mean, you, you're a law enforcement professional. You've seen criminals that just can't stop criming. I imagine he fits that profile to a T. He does um, because everything is transactional to him and he has to twist the situation so that he personally benefits. I I think the Trump organization may be involved in a pattern of criminal activity. I mean, I don't know if that lends itself to some kind of RICO, you know, investigation. I mean, that's also a possibility. Like you could hit him up, even if it's a civil investigation that totally breaks him financially. Right. Um, like a civil RICO violation where he's got, you know, has to pay like whatever, tens of millions of dollars or something like that. Um, Which he may not even, even have. Tax, even tax cases can, you know, go that in that, that direction, even if they're not criminal, where you have like hit by fines. And that would devastate him because hitting his pocketbook is where it hurts for him. Yeah. Especially. You, you mentioned the Mueller report. We heard President Biden say, and we've heard him say it before, that what he's doing to dissuade Russia from, you know, interfering in our elections again is a proportional response. Do you agree with that? Do you like what you've seen from him so far? You were a leading voice on this for for so many years now. Do you feel like Joe Biden is doing what needs to be done? 
I'll just tell you, I'm an, I'm, you know, I was raised on Rocky Four and Red Dawn. So, you know, I, to me, he can never be too rough, too tough on Russia. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the the challenge with Russia is Putin is willing to take risks. We've seen that, right? I mean, he he assassinates people in other countries. Yeah. Uh, so the, the guy does not observe, you know, norms. And so I think Biden's approach, which is it, it seems to be measured. And my sense is that at least with the, you know, kind of overt sanctions that, that he's taken, there is room to crank it up. And so what he's done is he's lobbed the ball back to Putin to say, OK, you can try to push it. And then what we can do is, you know, maybe reveal where all of his money is and, you know, all of these those things that I, I think Putin is very afraid of. There's a foreign policy concept called escalation dominance. And I don't know. Did you guys ever watch Seinfeld? Oh, that's what I did instead of studying. Do you remember um, George Costanza when they were talking about relationships? And he says, who has hand? Yes. Remember hand? Yeah, you got to have hand. Hand is important. You either have hand or the other person has hand. (laughs) Yes. Um, So escalation dominance is basically like who has hand? Okay. And so the fact that uh, Biden, like it may not seem super aggressive, but I think what it's doing is like leaving a choice. But he always he still has hand. Like he can take it up. He's got the hand. Thank you for explaining that to me in a way that I absolutely got it. In fact, if you want to write a book just okay. breaking down foreign policy into Seinfeld episodes, That's I think that would be hand. enormously That's a helpful. genius idea. You could do a podcast on that, actually. Hell yeah, you could. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So I, I have two book recommendations for your um, audience. So I'm reading this book right now. I'm finishing it up. It's called Bring the War Home. Um, by Kathleen Beaulieu. Very cool. And it's about basically the history of the white power movement and paramilitarism since like post-Vietnam going up to like Oklahoma City. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the things that she talks about is this thread that, you know, that there's all these many disparate groups, militia groups, the KKK, neo-Nazis, skinheads, you know, now we have probably, but there is this, there's this white supremacist idea that is really rooted in the belief that all of the major contributions have come from, you know, white people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second book is um, a book called uh, Fantasy Land by uh, Kurt Anderson. It's also like a history kind of of the myth of America, but the myth of America kind of being something that Americans create about themselves, right? Um, and one of those is this idea that, you know, we came here, there was nothing here and everything is created and it was all built on, you know, religious freedom and all this stuff, which, you know, isn't entirely true because the first colony in Jamestown was really about making money. So these two things, I think what we don't see is when we see comments like Santorum's, that's who that what they're tapping into. That is their audience. Yeah. Yeah. That is the worldview and the philosophy that they are connecting with. Um, they're not saying it out loud. Maybe they're not conscious that that's exactly what they are, you know, promoting. I can't see how they can't, you know, and I think that we need to start calling that out for what it is, because it's I I think the idea of, you know, white power, white supremacy is is now mainstreamed in so many ways. But through narratives and symbols and kind of cultural, you know, ideas that are okay to stand behind. It's not racism. It's heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can come in, you know. Nobody's going to come take my gun. Like, nobody's going to come take my guns is about, you know, the government, global conspiracy is going to take over the United States, 
uh, force, you know, interracial marriage and, you know, it, and they're going to take everybody's guns and force them to to do all of these, you know, crazy communist race mixing things. Like that's, that's so interesting. where the don't take my guns comes from. And he's like, you know, it goes back like 40 years. Yeah. I don't know how you go on TV and say this is not a racist country just months after the Confederate flag was flown in our capital yeah. for the first time. Right. Well, well, and, you know, Q, right? right? Like, again, the Q is sort of a symbol that it's it's not a swastika. It's not a Confederate flag. But the conspiracy theory that it espouses is the global, you know, the globalists taking over. You know, I mean, there, there, there is a lot of the old Nazi narratives, white supremacist narratives that are woven in, but in a way that makes it palatable for people who don't consider themselves Nazis or KKK to buy into. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Because they're just protecting children. <laughs> they're just, you know, it's, you know, we are saving the children. Um, right. So they, they kind of give these smoke screens that make it okay uh, to hide behind. Um, but really, they're all threads of the same thing. And I think, that, so just coming back to Santorum, I think that is the culture that he is tapping into when he's making those comments, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, is this a racist country? Well, we elected a black president. And half of white America lost their shit so much they got in bed with an ex-KGB agent. Right. I mean, that's that's my answer yeah. to, is this a racist country? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, you saw those cold warriors kissing Putin's ass. It wasn't because they, you know, just liked the flavor. That brings up a point, I mean, which comes to January 6th and, and these threads that I'm talking about is, you know, we, we're kind of in this culture war about, you know, is America racist or not? And I think it would be helpful to reframe it in a way that makes clear that racism is actually a national security threat. Yes. It is an exploitable fissure that now people who want to overthrow the government, you know, these these wackos who've been trying to blow up the government since, you know, God knows when and, you know, back, going back to Oklahoma City and before that. Ruby Ridge, yeah. Um, and then foreign uh, adversaries. So, you know, it decreases our national security all around. Um, and I, I wonder if there's just a way to approach it from that perspective that can diffuse the tribalism and kind of cultural aspect. It almost depersonalize it yeah. that, you know, to acknowledge it doesn't mean, you know, that you're, you're giving in. Or yeah, it's just it's a fault line running through our country and other, you know, now that other countries have figured out how to manipulate that. I mean, it's just, it has weakened us immeasurably. Yeah. Asha, did I see that you're a golfer? Do you play um, much? I am a golfer. I'm a bad golfer. Oh, I'm, we're, so we're, we're kindred yeah. there. Um, <laughs> I try to get out and play. I played um, much more last summer than I had for um, the couple of seasons before that. But I think next week I start like a five-week women's league class and i hope to do it more this summer that's awesome i came up playing with my mom and uh i miss playing with her a great deal speaking of other hobbies <laughs> a little birdie tells me that you love wine and fries and so does sam vinograd um is that coming back now that she's back in the government because i listened to a snippet of it and i was like i want to be part of this girl gang like i want to i want to drink wine and eat fries I so know. where where do i need to uh get fries in the country um <sighs> Oh, wow. We basically get fries wherever we go. Yeah. You know, it is it is hard. COVID put a damper on our wine and fries activities. But wine and fries was also like it was sort of what we did when we were dishing and gossiping. So that's also a part of it. So, like, you know, I, I call mine weed and tacos. Yeah. I, I guess I actually I shouldn't say that to an FBI agent. Well, I mean, we're in California. <laughs> it's legal out here. I'm hoping I have to get out of uh, COVID that um, there's a version of wine, wine and fries. And fries. We can get. 
going. Our listeners know I love to talk about the marijuana. You're a former law enforcement agent. Are you, are you pro-legalization? Are you anti? Where, where do you fall on that? I don't have like strong feelings. So I, I mean, I never did drugs. I don't have any personal feelings on it. Um, I was a FBI agent. So, (laughs) you know, I'm not like super upset that it's illegal, but I think it has a lot of negative externalities from being illegal from, you know, um, it may not be the best use of our criminal justice resources. It certainly creates a black market that has um, a lot of impact in other countries, neighboring countries like Mexico um, because of the, you know, the trade. So, I mean, I think that there are good policy arguments. You know, there's medical marijuana. I just it's not an issue that I have delved into very deeply. Sure. And it's not like I have I'm really, you know, I need it for myself. So I don't care so much. Well, let me ask you. <laughs> well, let me ask you when you're talking <laughs> about you bring up a interesting point. You're talking about limited criminal justice resources. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking about accountability that, you know, a a new Justice Department basically has to decide which battles it wants to fight. I'm curious, how overwhelmed are they just trying to process January 6th? Oh, my God. And then you add on four-year, you know, a four-year crime spree on top of that. Can can you sort of walk us through what that's like to be, you know, inside Maine Justice (sighs) and trying to figure out what to go after first? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how how they are triaging the January 6th incident. I mean, you have to imagine that they just have agents and analysts, I mean, combing through. They have to identify these people. Yeah. yeah. And also they're getting hundreds of thousands of tips. You know, the FBI, if they're anything, they're thorough. And so they will go through all of those. They'll follow the leads. You know, you have people turning others in. So they have to process those. And I think the challenge is also figuring out in this huge group of people, there are going to be people who just like went along with the masses and maybe, you know, will be the people charged with misdemeanor trespass or vandalism, you know, destruction of federal property, which is on the low end. But you also clearly had people, we've seen charges already filed on this, who had planned a serious attack, including harming federal officials. So they have to not only identify all these people, they have to sort through who are they going to go like and dig deep on um, and really explore, you know, the connections, the communications and all of that stuff. So that has to be taking up enormous resources. The FBI is decentralized. So to the extent that these people traveled from other places, it's not all just the D.C., you know, Washington field office. Like they will be sending leads to other uh, field offices to go conduct interviews, take do arrests and all that stuff. As far as the last four years, if you mean like the Trump administration stuff, you know, some of that, as we've seen, are be, will also be handled by particular districts. So the Southern District is obviously handling the, the Giuliani stuff. On top of that, we see that the Justice Department is making oversight of police departments and civil rights uh, issues a main priority. And so, you know, there are already like how many now p- pattern and practice investigations on a few de- police departments. Those take time. Those can go on for years because it's like almost like a full audit of of how a department operates. Um, and then they're also getting in involved in the criminal uh, level we just saw with with uh, the Andrew Brown case, the FBI is now investigating that as criminal civil rights violations. So they are going to have a lot of triaging to do of resources, I think. 
for sure. The January 6th misdemeanors are so hard for me to swallow. And I get it. I knew you. Once it, you said well, misdemeanor. I, I, just, it, I mean, like the guy who had his feet up, the, the scumbag who yeah. had his feet up on Speaker Pelosi's desk got out of jail this week. And it's like, you know, is it that easy? You yeah. just you try to overthrow the government and you get to go home? Well, he's just not being detained pending trial, right? So sure, the detention sure, sure. issue is, you know, that's going to be based on do they pose a danger? Are they a flight risk? I, uh, I, I have found a draconian side of myself when it comes to the January 6th terrorists. Oh, yeah. You're like, let's throw him in jail and throw away the key. I, yeah, yeah. Lock him up, bury him under the prison. I'm mean, not actually quite the, that. The other thing to remember <laughs> is, like I said, you know, there is going to be a scale of charges. And, you know, because just because they charge somebody initially with something that they know they've done because they're on TV, you know, or on, on video, you know, trespassing or, or a destroying federal property doesn't mean that they cannot add on charges as more evidence becomes clear, especially for people who are coordinating with others. You know, the person who flips first gets the best deal. So people are going to start flipping. They're going to start talking. Um, I think that ultimately going back to follow the money, the key is going to be who actually wasn't there, but had helped plan it, instigate it, fund it. Yeah. Because that didn't happen by accident, right? There were people higher up. And remember, people like Roger Stone, um, <laughs> cough, cough, you know, his pardon, I have to go back and read it, but well, his pardon is not prospective, yeah. right? Um, it, it covers conduct that for which he was arrested twice. So he he's still fair game and others as well for any kind of criminal activity, including whatever, providing material support for you know, terrorism, if that's what they knew it was going to happen, or if they were in on any of these violent plots. There's a concerted effort by Fox News and Republicans to make us forget what we saw that day. Oh, on yeah, January they're 6th. so mad about that. Do you think DOJ is going to let that happen? I don't, I mean, I think we're seeing they're already up to what they've arrested like 400 people or something like that. So, yeah. So, no. I, and I think the key is going to be when the trials happen of the more serious charges. Because that's when you're going to start getting the evidence in of what they were saying to each other, what they were planning for each other, you know, what they were planning on that day. I think that's going to start bringing home how serious it was. I think already we're starting to see, I don't know if you've seen on CNN the last couple of days, interviews with several of the police officers that were there that day. And, you know, these these people are suffering from PTSD. Yeah. Um, with serious, you know, so I think as time goes on, I mean, they can try as much as they want and they may very well succeed in convincing, you know, part of their base that it was Antifa that that did it. But I do think that the facts are going to come out. I think it's also really important to create a, a commission. Yes. Like, I mean, if we had a commission for 9-11, we need something like that to really break down and have a have a historical record, a congressional record of of what took place that day. Why don't they have a commission yet? Because Republicans are fighting it, trying to water it down and try to make it about Black Lives Matter and everything else that's, you know, not Donald Trump inciting a riot at the Capitol. Excellent. (laughs) I mean, remember that many members of Congress were helping. Yeah. Yeah. They were helping to incite this. So, you know, there's a self-preservation aspect of a a commission may implicate them. Um, And so, as Sam said, you know, muddying the waters by, you know, adding all these other things in there will help obfuscate the the issue. So let me ask you about FBI Director Chris Wray. And you you may not want to speak out of school about him, but my extremely amateur armchair quarterback opinion was in the days after January 6th was 
Where the hell's the FBI? Why, we get we get briefings on the hour when a little girl falls down a well, but when our capital was attacked, we didn't hear anything from anybody. And I have to believe a million conspiracy theories launch in that vacuum. Am I wrong? Am I just no, am I just right. so bloodthirsty that I I'm, I'm misreading? Yeah, it? I think that um, you're right, and the the fact that it was so unusual for a director to not come out and uh, talk and, you know, give the press conference. If you'll remember, it was like the um, head of the Washington field office. Like, I mean, you know, you didn't have the director of the FBI. Um, And I think it actually points to how precarious that moment. My, so this is my read of it. I think Chris Ray was afraid that if he showed his face in public and said anything that he'd be fired. And I think my guess is that his calculation was, I need to get these investigations and like it will be more crippling for the FBI to suddenly be leaderless. And so it's more important for me to stay, start triaging, you know, getting this underway than, you know, putting my face out there. But I think that there is there are some serious questions on what the FBI was doing leading up to this. And I think it's going to be some hard questions that the FBI is going to need to answer, because I think. You know, I mentioned that book before, uh, the the Bring the War Home. I mean, one of the threads is the FBI did used to be very focused on domestic terrorism. Um, they brought, you know, major prosecutions. And then in the 90s, you had some major disasters on this front. You had uh, Ruby Ridge, you had Waco. And I think that that caused a certain amount of you know, no pun intended, but like a fear of pulling the trigger, really, Um, because of how much bad press they got and how badly kind of those went down in so many different ways. And so there was kind of a pullback of treating uh, these kinds of domestic incidents as discrete things like like it was Oklahoma City and, you know, and Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were prosecuted but we never got a picture of like who else were they connected to? Like wh- what was that? What happened to the Michigan militia? Were they connected to like you know white nationalist groups? Right. They never kind of delved into that, um, into kind of the network. And then nine eleven happened, and all of a sudden the focus of terrorism is Islamic fundamentalism. That's the face of terrorism for twenty years. So in many ways, I think the domestic stuff has been on the on the back burner. Not that they haven't prosecuted people like Dylan Roof and things, but again, they haven't connected it to a broader threat, you know, which they've only done now in the past year of domestic violent uh, extremism is the biggest threat to, you know, our national security. So they're kind of like totally in reactive mode. And I think there's going to be a question of can the FBI, similar to after 9-11, shift um, not only its resources, but its kind of cultural approach like to treating domestic terrorism to uncover networks and things like that they have more limited tools than they do in the foreign arena um but also to investigate people as terrorists that they may not be used to seeing as terrorists yeah yeah right that they've been used to seeing as just you know the lone wolf mass shooter well guess what if lone wolf mass shooter is doing it because he's inspired by like some white supremacist manifesto then you know, that's something to take note of because that is an ideology that is radicalizing a lot of people. Same thing with, you know, recruitment of law enforcement and active duty military. Like this is a national security threat. You cannot have people be protecting members of society that they secretly think should be like eradicated or exterminated or whatever. I mean, it's just it's we're in a very bad situation. And I think that 
I think under the Biden administration, there will be a coherent strategy, but it may be something that is is playing catch up because of how it's evolved over time. Well, I, you know, I'm not the only one to say it, but it was striking that it was news that the president of the United States said we're going to fight white supremacist terrorists. And it was striking simply because the last president wouldn't do it. You mentioned Andrew Brown Jr. Um, if you don't know, he's a gentleman in North Carolina, another black man killed by police. Uh, there's an argument, there's a fight going on right now over releasing the body cam. Uh, Asha, can police in this country be reformed? Wow. I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to end on an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know. And I'll tell you, my brother's in law enforcement and I, I hold him in the highest regard. And I know for a lot of people, this isn't an easy answer, but I also know something's got to change because it just can't keep going the way it is. Yeah, something's got to change. And I just, I can't decide, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's, it's training. I don't know if it's screening. In other words, I think we have to really isolate, and I don't know how to articulate this as a problem to be addressed, but there is a very strong collective self-identity of law enforcement that, you know, you attack one of us, you're attacking all of us. And so it just like, I don't even know that you see that in the military. Like, I mean, I think, you know, if if a a service member like commits war crimes, most other military people are like, dude, that's a freaking war crime. Like that person needs to go to jail. Like you don't yeah. have that same right up until Trump pardons. You them. know, and I don't know if that kind of self-identity comes, you know, is it is it the union? Is it this this internal culture? But there's there's this weird like kind of bonding and complicity that I know that people have to see what's going on, you know, within these groups, see what's going on is wrong, but can't speak out or won't speak out because it, the costs are too high. Yeah. You know, and how do you address that piece of it? Because you can you can change the train, you know, you can increase, increase the training, maybe you can increase the screening. But ultimately, it's about, again, the culture. Right. And I don't I don't know how you. um Start getting to that. I will say I do think police departments should get more diverse. And some of that is there's a self-fulfilling prophecy when these things happen because the mistrust that happens between law enforcement and um, particular communities only uh, entrenches kind of the the composition of these agencies. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I mean, I I definitely saw this in the FBI post 9-11, you know, there was definitely a lot of mistrust and tension between the FBI and, say, um, South Asian communities. I was like, but that's exactly the reason that more South Asians need to apply to the FBI. Right. You know, um, you know, you you need to address these issues from the outside, but it's also helpful to get more women, to get a more diverse uh, police force. So I think that is often undervalued as a potential way of creating long-term change as well. I feel like you know that firsthand. These are very male-dominated yeah. and, you know, I think depending on the department, I guess, but I mean, the FBI, for example, is like 80% white, you know, um, and they just, they even with effort, they can't seem to break the barrier, you know, but there's a lot of self-selection going on too, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rubes, you got anything else? She just answered my question, which is, um, how do you deal? How did you deal with being, you know, an Indian woman in the FBI? And and I guess the answer is it was difficult or, you know, people can't see past their nose. But I feel like you're incredibly right that policing needs to get become more diverse so people understand each other more, which is something I don't think we think about as yeah. much. Yeah. And that's about training different communities. 
Asha, we can't thank you enough for joining us. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this discussion a lot. And if we ever get back to like a normal pre-pandemic world, you got to bring your sticks out to LA and we got to play some golf. Oh, totally. I will. For sure. You can't judge. That's the only... That's the only no, uh, no judgment. Judge. I am awful. So okay. yeah, no, no. The okay. bar is very low. Okay. Asha, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you on TV some more. We're, we're big fans. Uh, please keep fighting the good fight. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for today's show. But I want to thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be releasing all new episodes every Tuesday. This has been a Bunker Crew Media production. It's hosted by Sam Youngman and me, Ruby Frankel. Editing and sound design by Joy Ellett. Special thanks to Don Winning for the kick-ass show art. Homecoming for their cover of Man of Constant Sorrow and Ganga Beats. I love you, you sexy patriots. See you next week. <laughs>